0: Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi,
1: I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. This week, I am talking with Steve Lewandowski, who is the VP of Olefins at IHS Market, which is, as many people know, a leading global provider of information, insight, and consulting services to chemicals, petrochemicals, and refining. He's been in the chemical industry for over 30 years at companies, including Total, before he joined IHS. And we are just going to have a great conversation about what is going on in the chemical industry. So Steve, welcome to The Chemical Show.
2: Victoria, thanks for the invite and excited to share some thoughts with you about Absolutely. the market and other things that are going on
1: for sure. There's a lot going on right now. So let's just get started for folks that don't know. Give us a brief intro to IHS Market.
2: Yeah, so that's an interesting story. So IHS Market's probably a name you will soon have to forget because it is going to go away. So over the course of the last 24 months or so, a merger's taking place or has was announced and is now you know, finalized with S&P Global and IHS Market Merging. And they're taking on a new name as S&P Global and different divisions will be, you know, intertwined within that existing organization. I mean, IHS has a very interesting story. I think, like you said, it's data and insights. Over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, they've really acquired a lot of different companies really to assess, I like to say, geology to widgets, but even more space beyond that from insights and data. But really, it was about insights, too, and connecting that whole chain. But as things go with normal mergers, there's reviews by government authorities on antitrust. And when this was originally announced, this broader merger, there was certain divisions in both companies that were expected to have to be carved out, Opus being one of those. And at the 11th hour, as things were finalizing, It came up that there's some concerns about us in our base chemicals group, us doing market research, insights kind of in the short run and insights even in the longer run. How do we add capacity and do supply, demand and trade in the longer run? So we went through this fire drill of finding a buyer and working through the alternatives and the bidding process. And we came to the conclusion or IHS market, S&P Global came to the conclusion, the right buyer was the same buyer as Opus. And actually some of our coal and metals and mining went there. So we're going to be part of Dow Jones or a news corp organization in some new vertical that's yet to be named because this is kind of new space for Dow Jones. So we're excited. I think they're excited about having us and, you know, we're still working on the name and the branding and doing all that stuff because the bigger merger was done the 1st of March. Our carve out really is targeted for the 1st of June. Or sometime before the middle of June, so we're still kind of Got in it. limbo in our group, yeah. but we are going to go in, and we're going with all our research. You know, the foundation of what was chemicals and IHS market, we'd like to say, the bedrock was our researchers. So 150 of us or so are moving to Dow Jones to continue to work with the clients, you know, and give them the insights they need. So a new chapter awesome. for, for both yeah. groups. We're excited. I think S and P Global, you know, they're less excited maybe because we were part of the piece. They really wanted to have, but it is what it is and we're moving on.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting just that this space in the market is having kind of evolution, much like we've seen in other parts of the market, right? Because a lot of folks still think of CMAI and you know other groups that have gotten consolidated and changed and shifted. So I think, yeah, the next step.
2: Yeah. So more to come. So I think this is good timing. Analytic news It is going to change, but we're yeah. the same people doing the same thing just under a different logo.
1: So one of the things that this brings to mind to me, and I've been talking with folks about digitization, and I would imagine in your business, the whole backend data analytics, AI perhaps is actually really big. Is that a fundamental of how you and your teams do the work that they do to understand and analyze and forecast the markets?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we're kind of scratching the surface on this. And it's interesting. We've had good dialogue with our energy colleagues over the course of the last three or four years. And they're, they've progressed on this a bit quicker than us. And it's really about how data is supplied to the market. You know, In some of this space, they get you know data by second, data by minute, you know, yeah. data by day. And the cadence on a lot of our data is not that frequent. It may be monthly, it may be quarterly. So you just don't get enough data to make statistically, you know, sound conclusions about how the market's behaving. And we're trying to improve on that. And as you said, more data could be available and we're trying to aggregate that. So we have a big initiative to go down that path. And then we have a lot of quants asking for our data. They want to sort through it. So, you know, maybe we give them some data, but we do that for others that, you know, don't have the resources internally. But that's definitely one of our drivers. How do we manage this data? We have a lot of data. Everything's yeah. connected. It's a big spider web, you know, so we're, we're trying to make this happen. And I think Dow Jones is excited about this as well. So that just, you know, because we're a new vertical, we're going to get a bit more focus. And, you know, the claim is they got a pretty good deal on the price at the end of the day when you look at the multiples. I know you can debate that, but hopefully that means they get a bit more money our way to help support some of this development.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think you're right. The chemical markets tend to, they're not very transparent, right? So versus the oil and refining side where products are actively traded. And you know, as you say, you know, the price by the second almost versus now you have to, you're aggregating information that's not as real time. Yeah. Refining guys, you know, the
2: government supplies a lot of data about, or open table, how many, you know, people are sitting in chairs in restaurants. You can get a count of where money is going, you know, you saw yeah. through COVID a slowdown and now it's ramping up and how people move, vehicle tra- miles traveled, you know, airplane reservations and who's sitting in airplanes. I mean, just to get a view on gasoline and jet and diesel. Yeah. So they have an advantage there that we're trying to figure out how do we do this differently and can we find yeah. the data sources?
1: That's super interesting. So, so let's just jump in. Can you just give us a brief overview of what's going on in Olefin's markets today? And I, I think that's a loaded question because we are living in a world of dissonance, I guess maybe is my best word, but what do you see and what are you hearing from your colleagues and clients in the market?
2: So really on the short-term front, okay, we're coming off COVID, uh, but going in pre-COVID, what we saw, and I was maybe more about ethylene and propylene versus sure. the rest of the space, but it's kind of similar. We added a lot of capacity globally, well above what demand growth was expected. So we were thinking about a lot of pressure on margins just because as through normal cycles in this value chain, we've seen it many times before. So we are really calling for weaker, weaker margins because of the overbuild. Someone's going to have to be induced to reduce rates and economics is the only way to make that happen. Right. COVID yeah. came, that kind of turned things upside down. Now we have a conflict between, you know, in Ukraine with Russia, and it's really causing dislocations, you know, on a lot of fronts. So, in fact, margins are really weak in Asia, really weak in Europe because oil went up, feedstocks went up, and the products just couldn't keep pace. And there's a lot of concern about recession and stagflation and recession. So, you know, we're just watching really the, the consumer behavior and their interests. But North America, because we have this you know, feed called ethane and NGL's propane, they didn't really rise with oil because we are kind of an island unto ourselves because we can't clear all that product. So our advantage has returned right? today. Got it. So the advantage we like saw in
1: early 2010s exactly. is so back.
2: If you can run, you're really happy in North America because the margins are great, which is a problem because they can't run because we have a logistics issue. So we don't have containers where that we need them. COVID is causing issues in Asia with workers and lockdowns in different ports and regions. And that's really causing problems for North America. We can't run as hard as we want, even though we have strong margins, just because we can't get rid of the stuff we can make. So good margins, but you know there's a lot of upside if they can solve this logistics problem.
1: So I think one of the things, I'm not sure, there's so many things to unpack here. Let's figure out what we're to <laughs> What we want to tackle first. And maybe it's just this whole view of the regionalism, right? So it seems like in many ways, pre-COVID, we were perhaps moving to more harmonized pricing, supply, demand, et cetera, globally, right? Because supply chains were moving effectively. And when you get to the comparison prices, it seemed like you know products were fungible across boundaries. That doesn't seem to be the case today right so you've referenced this margins in north america are really strong Asia is really weak i've been reading some stuff over the last couple of days the news that's coming out is almost grim i would yeah, yeah. say in terms of just what how thin the margins are how low operating rates are some of the challenges that are taking place and then of course europe has a variety of impacts not least of which is the russia ukraine conflict and the results of that so are you seeing a shift to more regional markets, and is that going to be short term or long term?
2: Yeah, that's a, a good question. And I learned from a, an old operator when I had a plant life. You know, statisticians—if you, if you torture numbers long enough, they'll confess to anything.
1: Yeah, now I'll tell you it's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> so
2: when you look on a, a percentage of demand in international trade, it is decreasing a bit, which would say, okay, that's you know, cause of For concern. But when you actually look at the tonnage that's moving, it continues to grow. So the market demand is growing and movement is going to continue. And we think the two probably biggest drivers of that is advantage feed. So the Middle East has advantage feed. North America has advantage feed. Maybe someday, you know, Latin America will develop, you know, in Argentina and they'll have an advantage feed. We think that's a big driver to where you put steel on the ground and you can move them products to the rest of the world we think yeah. that is going to happen in asia they have a cost advantage just purely on investment cost the cost per right. ton of investment ethylene and propylene you know at times was half or less than half of us so they could build and import feedstocks and still make that work because they're a big demand region so we think the logistics will work its way through it'll solve itself and you know Economics, we believe, will still rule, but okay, okay, politicians always enter the fray. And you know, sometimes there's emotion that overtakes logic and economics. So, but we're a believer that the logic will work and that, you know, as long as there's a feedstock to you utilize with an advantage, it'll move to the rest of the world and we'll continue to build in North America up till the point we exhaust our feeds. And, you know, Asia, China will continue to build because they're really. China's a big sink for a lot of ethylene and contained propylene.
1: Got it. Makes sense. So let's talk about Russia, Ukraine. Obviously, this is, well, it's on everybody's minds, right? Because of just what we see in here every day. How is this affecting chemical markets? And what are you, I guess, forecasting and predicting in terms of how this shapes up as the impact to the chemical markets and maybe, you know, olefins, ethylene, propylene and other products.
2: Yeah. So when we look at the two countries, just purely from an ethylene propylene perspective and what moves to the rest of the world, it's very small. So just looking at that and say, okay, if we lose a couple hundred thousand tons of contained ethylene from the two combined regions that normally go to the rest of the world, the rest of the world had overbuilt. So we have spare capacity and, you know, we could have solved that. It really is the indirect impacts, which is energy. You know, when you look at the balance out of Russia, you know, somewhere 60 to 70% of their oil or oil equivalents are exported, whether that's Mm. by pipe or whether that's waterborne. And that's really where the the concern is. If you start losing this oil, then the cost structure goes up. And that's problematic for these other regions that we're really not able to push prices through like Asia and Europe Mm. for that matter.
1: And are European crackers being starved at the moment? I mean, that would be my, you know, that's my outside-in concern, I guess, when you think about cutting off some of the gas supply and other stuff. Yeah,
2: I think from a feedstock perspective, I would say no. But what you just brought up, natural gas is really the problem today, right? There's a lot of concern about nat gas and the price of natural gas went from $7 and MMBTU up to 60 for windows of time. I think it's settled at 30. It's really expensive to make stuff there and it makes Europe non-competitive on a lot of fronts. So they're looking to import finished goods, semi-finished goods or pellets, which is a problem because we don't have logistics. So all this is mm. kind of compounding itself, but mm-hmm. we don't see reductions because of stock. Per se, okay. but we are seeing reductions just because of economics and everyone's, you know, uneasy about do I run? We've taken a pause in demand. I think the consumers are a bit concerned because everything's going up. Prices are going up on energy, but also on food materials. So wheat right. and corn and other things coming out of Ukraine and Russia, they're big exporters. And that's causing some concern around the world. So this goes back to inflation. You don't have money to, you know, you're going to feed yourself and you're going to have to move around to go to work, but maybe you don't buy widgets made out of plastic, durable or non-durable goods. So that's kind of the concern in our demand outlook. Where is that going to play out as the consumer's a bit less comfortable?
1: Yeah. I think seeing you and heard you speak recently at Houston Chemical Association, and one of the things I wrote down from that time was about the impact on food, on agrochemicals, just on that whole sector, as it relates both to individuals, but also just as we think about the impact on the chemical market, can you address that in terms of how, what you guys are seeing yeah, as an yeah. effect. So one thing
2: I'm going to miss about not being an IHS market is we had a great ag group too. And we actually have a routine call just to kind of go over all these different issues. It's not only ag, it's metals and minerals and palladium, but yeah, there's a lot of exports of corn, soil, wheat that we think there's probably inventory around the world that can cover maybe this cycle of it. But what we know is planting is season is now. And, you know, you're kind of afraid to go in a tractor and plant a field if, you know, there's bombs flying over your head. So that's a concern is that we're going to lose some planting. And on top of that, this region was a big producer of ammonia and urea, which you need to fertilize the crops. And, you know, part of that goes down when you do the initial planting. So even if they do plant some fields, we think the productivity per acre of, you know, whatever you would assess is going to be a lot lower. So Interesting. the concern is, what are we going to do? You know, people are going to have to, countries are going to have to feed their people and we're going to lose this flow. And how does that get managed? Which by definition means prices are going to rise. And our guys did a great job. I saw something they showed yesterday is that, you know, we're going to feed people with grains and make breads. So where do you get rid of demand for these agricultural products? Well, it's not in fuels because that's all mandated. As long as people are driving, you got to use biofuels. you are got to feed people. The only thing in the middle is feedstock ag products to go to, you know, beef industry, pork industry. And they're going to be the ones that lose the feed. So, hmm. you know, their view is price of meats are going to go through the roof because you can't feed the livestock anymore.
1: Right. Price and availability. And then yeah. it maybe just ties Which in with is, this. You know, then it
2: goes out of the pocketbook of the consumer. And then how do they, goes back to what's going to happen to the demand for plastics. And, you know, it's all. Yeah. So it plastic. all
1: ties back to, to plastics it and exactly. contained ethylene. So actually I'm going to ask you, and I was going to break in earlier. So you reference, I think a couple of times contained ethylene, contained propylene. I think not everybody maybe understands that fully that maybe listening to this code. Can you explain that a little bit? Okay, so what that means? No, so
2: ethylene is one of the main building blocks. It's the biggest petrochemical building block. But different products you make from ethylene have a different amount of ethylene in them. So, polyethylene, which everyone's familiar with, bags, et cetera, it's about one for one. So, every pound of polyethylene probably has a pound of ethylene. But another material everyone's familiar with is PVC, you know, Mm. PVC vinyls, you know, whether that's a material for your flooring or for your windows and doors. But when you look at PVC for every pound of PVC, because it has a lot of chlorine in it, it's only half a pound of ethylene. So we try to get it back to a similar reference for all the derivatives and do that chemistry ratio to say, okay, I want to look at ultimately ethylene demand, how much is contained in each of these different derivatives as you move down the stream. So that's why we talk in contained ethylene. The PVC guys will talk about just PVC, polyethylene, we'll talk just about polyethylene, you know, glycol folks, we'll just talk about glycol, but we have to bring it all back to some common reference, which is contained yeah. ethylene, contained propylene, contained benzene.
1: What do you see as the impact? What are you guys predicting? It's the impact of circularity, advanced recycling, just this whole move. There are some very clear targets that have been set by large petrochemical, chemical and plastics producers, consumer products, companies, et cetera, across the value chain about reducing the amount of virgin resin, more use of recycled material, recyclable material, et cetera. What effect do you see that having on the net ethylene demand? How do you guys, where do you even factor that in? Like, I don't even know how to plug that in actually, as I think about what, you know when you start doing your metrics and thinking about that
0: yeah that's
2: another good question we've got a lot of good questions so we actually are fortunate we have a team and we've done a couple you know major multi-client studies on this over the course of the last three or four years as the regulations were evolving as technology was evolving but now we have a service so we have a team that's looking essentially at all the applications for this contained ethylene contained propylene in these derivatives They're looking at every one of these sectors and saying, how could these grow? How could they be impacted? How much can take, you know, mechanically recycled, which we think is the simplest is taking some plastic that you throw out, you know, washing it, chopping it up, melting it and reusing it. And there's limits to that just because of the rheology and chemistry and the reuse or because of contamination. If it touches food, if it's going to touch medical and hygiene, you can't really put recycled material, mechanically Mm -hmm. recycled material into those applications so they go through this long list and assess that and once that hits limits and we've been looking at this for many many years PET has been the leader in this it's not something new it's something that's getting more visibility but we assess that piece and then we say okay what's the next step if it's not mechanical what do you do there's depolymerization to fill in different sectors of the chain or as you know there's pyrolysis. you take it you heat it and you kind of create a synthetic oil or a synthetic naphtha that goes back to the front of the chain, and you continue to have to build steam crackers and polymer plants to service to mangrove, it will have impacts to fossil fuel recovery, because you won't need as much fossil fuel. And that's kind of one of the desires is let's stop drilling, and let's reuse what we're making and just going into landfill or leaking into the environment some other way. But that doesn't come without a carbon footprint. You know, that's the best technology. It gives you most flexibility because you go back to the initial feedstock, but you still need investments. And so policy is the most important thing. You know, will there be bans and what's the substitute, you know, what's the alternative? Right. If you don't have plastic, which is proven to be really an enabler to societies around the world, what are you going to use? Glass? It's heavy. You know, it needs more energy to move around. It's got breakage issues. You know, do you use aluminum? Well, you got to mine aluminum and, you know, you got to dig this stuff out of the ground and that's not power-free. So looking at all these pathways to CO2, as well as you know the implications of plastic, I think they kind of have opposing goals at times, right? Reduce mm-hmm. plastic, but a lot of plastic will help you reduce the carbon footprint.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is an area, and I've talked with people about this, that, you know, this is an area where as an industry, we're not owning the narrative very well, right? So there is huge benefits to the use of plastic instead of glass when you think about lightweighting and what that means for reduced energy consumption in a variety of ways, right? And it's just, people don't understand it. We haven't told the story very well. And now, frankly, consumers see what they can see and feel, and it has a visibility. And I think that's where some of the drive comes from. And then obviously regulations and other areas. We certainly need to address it, but we also need to tell the whole story behind it. And I'm talking with several people also on the podcast that are focusing in some different areas and trying to change the narrative on this and promoting how their products are very sustainable when you broaden what sustainable means, right? And in terms of energy consumption, et cetera.
2: And there's an industry, right, there's the Alliance to you know, Recover Plastic Waste. I yeah. mean, the industry's taking the initiative with brand Huge. owners as well as us. It's a big thing and it's cultural, right? It's, if you go to other countries of the world, you know, the way they collect and contain waste is different than the way maybe Europe, the Western world does it. Right. And that's something that, you know, it's about educating that population to say, we can do this better. We can get the trash out of the environment. Then I would say, then we can smartly reuse it. You know, we're clever people in chemistry and the industry, but you got to have it in a place you know, gathered and contained that then you can do some level of conversion or reuse whatever right. that may be. And I think right. that alliance is going a long way to help improve. They are doing a
1: great job. And I do think a big part of their focus is that middle ground. Like how do you actually collect? How do we educate and collect so that yeah. those products are in, in a position to take, reuse, exactly. and do something different with it. So yeah, more to come. I think we're in a really evolving time. Right. Yes. I think, you know, the speed of change is just ever faster for sure. So let's talk energy transition, right? So that's the other side of this, right? So when I think about energy transition and I know historically a lot of chemical feedstocks have come off of refining products, right? So, I mean, refinery byproducts, naphtha coming into crackers, et cetera, we're in transition. There's no doubt about it. How does that energy transition affect the olefins markets, petrochemical markets, and just investments, et cetera, in that?
2: So we just completed a major study on energy transition. So our refining colleagues in the petrochemicals to look at this interface. I mean, I've been a refiner, I've been a pet chem guy, so I appreciate the challenges and the reasons where we are where we're at and why we haven't moved further. I mean, you're exactly right. Everything petrochemicals, ethylene and propylene, comes from either oil via naphtha or NGLs via oil and that gas you know, production, kind of as a byproduct of that. They'll get a bit from coal in China. There's some of that chemistry. So this is a big concern, depending on the paths that we take to net zero. I think we're learning now that it's harder to do than people really imagined. I mean, that oil prices are high, demand is high. You just can't convert everything to some other source of power that's not fossil fuel based. And that's one of the challenges. So we've looked at many different profiles of what happens if we go faster than our base case and our base case isn't that aggressive, but it's kind of aggressive. And the issue is the faster you go and petrochemicals, because we are energy conserving kind of technology, there's a problem because we lose feedstocks. And, you know, at the end of the day, we got to convert oil or gas. To petrochemical, and if it's not coming as a co-product from a refinery that's normally making gasoline, jet fuel, and diesel, that carries the refining economics, NAFTA is a bit of an afterthought, and they make it go away as long as yeah. the refining economics are good. In the future, it's almost NAFTA on purpose. And once you hmm. go to NAFTA on purpose, what do you have to do? You have to have prices that justify building or debottlenecking or retrofitting your existing refineries or build new ones kind of to fit to purpose. That means capital, but it also means that the nap, the price is going to have to carry that operations in Canada, which means prices go up, which means the cost of plastics likely will go up relative to where it was historically. Again, it it depends all on the pace of transition.
1: Is it just a cost impact? I mean, is there a concern about availability of feedstock? As a result of the energy transition, is that something that people that you guys are talking about or people that you work with are talking about?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of oil in the ground and a lot of gas in the ground. So the worry isn't about that natural resource. And if we transition quicker to lower fossil fuel-based energy and fuels, there's going to be a lot of oil still. Okay. So it's just a question of, do we have the right oil of the right quality Because oil is not oil, right? There's really heavy, heavy sour oil. There's really light, light sweet oil and uh, everything in between. And it's really a question about which oil is available. You know, how do I mix and match these hydrogens and carbons to make the plastic I need? So I don't think it's about a resource, but it is about how do I capture the carbon and take care of that piece of the equation and then continue to prove that plastics is the right solution. And then probably by definition, if oil demand drops, you know, the marginal oil that you have to recover is probably cheaper. Mm, You'll know, okay. less infrastructure because there's less things moving around, but it's going to be there and it's just going to be at a higher relative to cost versus oil than historically. That not the price is going to have to go up.
1: Do you see that? Is that true across the world, right? So I sometimes feel like, and maybe this is just because I'm sitting here in the US, I feel like sometimes the big push on energy transition and carbon capture and greenhouse gas reductions, a huge amount of the effort. And focus is in North America and Europe. And I hear, you know, and maybe less so elsewhere. And I don't know if that's just, you know, it's the bias because of where I sit. But do you see those impacts across the regions? I mean, I've heard recently that China's investing in something like 40 coal fired electricity generation plants. And yet, like in the UK, they've effectively banned coal as a source of energy. So how do you see this playing out? Globally, are there significant regional differences that we need to be aware of? I mean, I think the sector matters.
2: So point source, which is a power plant that's using coal or nat gas, there's technologies to recover that CO2. You know, some are more efficient than others, depending on the CO2 concentration, but we know how to do that. It's just about money. So that's quite possible, but mobility is way different, right? It's a mobile source. There's cars, trucks, airplanes moving around, which is much more difficult to capture that CO2. So what is that transition? It means probably we need to do mobility first and you can move it to power where you can capture it in power and then you can do solar and nuclear and all these other alternatives for power gen or you can go to hydrogen, but hydrogen takes energy to make. It doesn't right. come free. So, I mean, I think that sector, you know, kind of has to go in that sequence. If you really think about petrochemicals, most of the petrochemicals, you know, you use some energy to make it. But at the end of the day, the carbons and hydrogens go into a landfill, right? It's a carbon sink. It's no mm-hmm. different than capturing CO2 out of a stack and sticking it in the ground. You know, it is a sink for plastic or for CO2. And it doesn't go back into the environment other than the leakage with waste, which we're trying to solve. So in that regard, it's kind of a carbon sink. Huh. The world doesn't want to think about it that way, but that's no, the reality. Not how, at all. That's how the way the molecules work, right? So it kind of helps directionally to make that up, but our industry is clever, right? We, we are already working to solve these problems on emissions in the processes themselves. Dow runs the big project in Alberta, Canada, you know, the Gulf coast of the U S is looking at putting infrastructure in to move CO2 from producing sites to some place to sequester it. So, I mean, this is stuff we know how to do. It just Mm. means cost and, you know, is the consumer willing to pay that cost for that convenience? That's what's to be determined.
1: So how does this affect regional cost competitiveness?
2: I think it's going to be kind of the same drivers, right? You have a raw material that's cheap. And take, for instance, if oil demand drops and the U.S. stops producing as much oil as we did, we're going to lose this other nice feedstock that we call ethane, right? If we lose ethane and there's less ethane, our assets could be stranded because that's the only feed they can run which means the other regions may get a benefit because they can build on the heavier feeds and build to suit. Will we build you know, crude oil to chemicals plants in the US greenfield? And I'm, I don't know. I'm hard pressed to see that happening, yeah. but it, never say never, right? Yeah. It's something that could happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors and obviously regulations and regulations on oil production and gas production are part of the factor that influences this as well.
2: Which creates uncertainty for sure in the U.S., right?
1: Huge uncertainty. Are you going to drill or not
2: drill? Are you going to build a new plant if you're not sure the new administration you're going to get every four years or every eight years is just going to change his view completely? I mean, that's the Yeah.
1: So you talk to a lot of chemical companies. You know, what are their big questions and what are their approaches? And, you know, I mean, if they, as when we think about this, is there a concern? Do you see a common focus? Where are their uncertainties that affect how they're operating their business, how they're investing in their future, et cetera.
2: I think, as you noted earlier, you know, we're a bit behind on the circularity issue and plastic leakage, but I think they're ahead of the curve on CO2. Okay. And the fact that there's a consortia being developed by these companies on the Gulf Coast to build CO2 infrastructure, you know, goes a long way to tell you what yeah, they're thinking. Huge. Let's get ahead mm-hmm. of this. We know how to do it. Those building a plant are going to, you know, hopefully do FID and approve this plant and make this thing happen. So we know how to do it and they're happy to invest and say we're contributing, but they all are also saying, and I did the analysis once, you know, in a piece I wrote on the Dow, it is more steel. I mean, you need more plants Mm. in the footprint. You need more, you know, parts of the plant that you're going to have to add, which means more capital, which means shareholders are going to want to return or they're not going to give you money. And, by definition. If it costs you more, you need more margin to make that happen, or, or maybe you don't build.
1: Yeah. So you still see investment happening pretty significant.
2: Yeah. Th- well, yeah, we don't see a pause in plastics growth for all the things we said. It's an enabler. People are, are realizing the alternatives are much, much worse. Okay. Let's push you to fix the things you can fix and let's have the minimal leakage, but you know, yeah, we're going to still invest in petrochemicals is our view.
1: Interesting. All right, Steve. So we've touched on a number of things here just in terms of general markets. What's the potential effect of Russia Ukraine, energy transition, et cetera? What are some leading indicators? What should we be watching for over the next few months, over the rest of 2022, that are going to significantly or have the potential to significantly impact chemical markets?
2: I think the duration of the conflict is one key. And we're doing a lot of discussion internally about what is the rebuild process of Ukraine after you see all these buildings built out, and where does that yeah, come from? Yeah, and who's going to pay for it? The biggest thing we really are watching, you know, is if this goes longer, what happens to the oil liftings and transportation fuel liftings out of Russia? The world doesn't have a lot of spare capacity. Oil prices are so high; most of them are maxing out what they can. The Saudis have some degrees of freedom. The U.S. or maybe less. We have the resource, but we have the concern that we don't really know what our government's policy is going to be to really go drive to pull more oil out of the ground. I mean, from entry to exit, we have more oil production. That was always in our base plan. Is it going to Mm. be enough to satisfy seven and a half million barrels a day of lower production or output coming out of Russia? No, not the U.S., probably not Saudis. I mean, the only thing saving us today, I think, is the COVID And the shutdowns in china which have brought down their oil demand considerably Mm, over the course of the
1: last interesting uh,
2: couple of weeks so it's kind of masking what's going on because if they were really pulling as hard as they normally do i think the oil prices probably would be a bit stronger so again duration Mm. of conflict and what's going to happen to the exports out of russia yeah
1: and then as you say china and how it comes out of this current COVID shutdown
2: yeah And will there be another conflict, right? I mean, there's bombs being launched from Yemen into Saudi and, you know, other political actors are making some noise. North Korea is making noise. So we're not for a lack of geopolitical events right now. And we have one big one, but a bunch of others doing.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of geopolitical tension and that always has a potential for big impact. Yes. We may or may not realize it, but it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, good. Steve, this has been really good. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you giving some time today and having the conversation.
2: I appreciate you reaching out and happy to do it.
1: Absolutely. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of The Chemical Show. Keep listening, liking, sharing, and we'll continue to grow. Thanks.
0: We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.